Well, if you take your Bibles along with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Today is Independence Day, a day celebrated in our nation, our nation, and rightly so. Much to be thankful for, much to give thanks for, much to celebrate. For the Christian, it should be a day of thanksgiving to God for the liberties and freedoms that are ours. Giving thanks as well for those who have fought and died and served to secure those freedoms. As well as a day for prayer, for the preservation of those freedoms. And to pray for a great spiritual awakening in our nation and indeed around the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are truly blessed as a nation with great freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, all of which we are participating in and benefiting from in this very moment. And from the standpoint of history, these are rare freedoms. And yet today they are freedoms that are under constant and increasing attack. And we as Christians are coming under greater and greater scrutiny and more intense opposition for our beliefs, our convictions, and our practices. In part, that is what has made our study of 1 Peter so timely and relevant and important for us. The Christian readers of this letter we call 1 Peter we're living an increasingly living in an increasingly hostile cultural setting. Peter was writing to them to give them gospel hope for troubled times, and that's what we've identified as the theme of 1 Peter, gospel hope for troubled times. And in many ways our own cultural moment aligns quite closely with the cultural moment being experienced by these Christians in Asia Minor. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they were experiencing the beginnings of increased hostility and opposition to their faith in Jesus Christ, to their decisions to live for Christ. And Peter writes to them to encourage them in the gospel and to instruct them in how they should respond to this growing resistance they were coming up against. The freedoms we have and we celebrate today, rightly, are seen to be all the more precious when we consider that many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord do not have these freedoms and they suffer greatly as a result. I read this week a blog post from a Christian pastor serving in China, a Chinese Christian pastor, and I want to share some of that with you this morning. I've included a link to this post on the sermon notes page of our church app if you want to go back and read it later, but for now just listen. The blog post is entitled, My Life as a Christian Under a Communist Regime. 
It's subtitled, Reflections on the 100th Birthday of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's by Zhang San, a pastor in China. This is what he wrote. I started to read the Bible because I was suspicious of everything I'd learned in my Chinese school. Maoism, socialism, Marxism, and their deeper roots. My suspicion began in 1997, my second year in college. I happened to visit an online memorial marking June 4th, the terrible day in 1989 when protesters in Tiananmen Square were crushed. The memorial's articles and photos overturned my knowledge about what happened in Tiananmen Square. In the end, my suspicion and doubt led me to the roots of communist ideology, atheism, and the theory of evolution. Realizing communism fell because of its false assumption about human nature, I turned to Christianity and embraced what the gospel assumed, the sinful nature of all humans and the need for redemption through Christ's atonement. I am not alone. I've heard many similar stories among other Christians here in China who are my age. A reform and opening up era started by chief architect Deng Xiaoping not only connected China to the world, but also gave us a chance to wonder, why is our country so different from others? This legitimate question ultimately led many of us to Christ. Since we don't have full religious liberty here in China, there's always a heavy price to pay if one decides to follow Christ. We're not under severe persecution compared to Christians in North Korea or Iran. We're just experiencing some troubles. Even in places where these troubles are severe, people can at least read the Bible, pray, and fellowship with each other privately. Chinese Christians can vividly see the meaning of Jesus' words, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. New believers are often driven out of their homes because parents think it's a shame to have a Christian daughter or son. One brother had to resign from his job because he was a Communist Party leader but became a Christian. Wang Yi, a dear pastoral friend, was imprisoned for nine years simply because he preached the gospel publicly and bravely. These stories are not just something on social media. They surround us. What a blessing to see God's work around us. It may surprise you, but from my perspective, the main suffering for Chinese Christians is not physical persecution or lack of religious liberty, but bad theology. Though the reason behind bad theology is the lack of freedom. Because of globalization, the culture of Chinese society is a mixture of Western secularism, expressive individualism, and authoritarianism. Due to strict social control, churches in China do not have sufficient theological education, equipped pastors and theologians, or even good books to warn against the dangers of false teaching. Imagine a believer in the United States. If he realizes a congregation is under the threat of a prosperity gospel, 
from the pulpit or social media, he can buy and read good books, share revealing articles on social media, speak to the pastor, and ultimately choose a healthy church in the area that resists false teaching. But here in China, this is very difficult. There are few good Christian books on the market and web. Most churches do not have a full-time pastor. It's hard to find another church because faithful churches are hidden underground. In other words, if you move to a city and happen to be in a bad church, you have nowhere to go unless you disregard Hebrews 10.25 and neglect to meet together. Here in China, we long for rich theological resources, seminaries, solid teachers and pastors, and healthy churches, which religious liberty could make possible. However, what we have now is not a curse, but God's blessing. He knows best. And then he quotes from Philippians 4.11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Brothers and sisters, we have much to learn from our brothers and sisters who are following the Lord in difficult places. This morning, I want us to look together at our text to help us to keep the right perspective when we experience suffering for following Jesus Christ. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4. Verses 12 through 13. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Peter continues writing. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, on this Independence Day, we do give you thanks for the great freedoms we enjoy. And as we just read this testimony of this brother pastor in China, we are grateful for the religious liberties we've enjoyed. And we don't even realize how much we have benefited from the, these freedoms and the, the free flow of the gospel in our midst for generations. We're grateful to you for that. We know that's come from your good hand, and we have each benefited from it. We pray for our brothers and sisters worldwide who are ministering and serving and following, following you under very different circumstances, and yet finding reason to rejoice, trusting you in their circumstances, continuing to grow and seek you and be faithful to you. Thank you, Lord, for their example. We have much to learn from them. Though they don't have necessarily the resources we do in terms of the theological works and the training and the seminaries and the schools and the theological depth perhaps that that we have benefited from lord nevertheless there is a spiritual wisdom present that we often lack so humble us lord before your word before your truth prepare our hearts 
for suffering. For Jesus' sake. We ask us in his name. Amen. Well, Peter is beginning a new section of his letter here in 1 Peter 4.12. We can see this in the way he ended the prior section with a doxology and how he begins this new section by addressing his readers once again as beloved. So there's a break here between chapter 4.11 and chapter 4.12. Peter here is transitioning into a another salvo of instruction with regard to the Christian in suffering. How do we respond when we suffer for following Jesus? And so this morning as we look at verses 12 and 13, I want us to see two important responses when suffering unjustly as a Christian. Two important responses when suffering unjustly as a Christian. All right, the first is... This, when you suffer unjustly as a Christian, don't be shocked. Don't be shocked. Peter commands us here not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal among us, which comes upon us for our testing as though some strange thing were happening to us. Now, Peter's language here is very intentionally similar to language he used back at the beginning of his letter. If you look back with me at chapter 1. Chapter 1, Peter talking about suffering and trials and how God uses that in our lives and how we ought to expect that. 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this gospel, which he's just mentioned in verses 3-5, through 5, In this gospel you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter mentioned in in an introductory fashion in chapter 1, he now dives into with more instruction here in chapter 4. God uses trials and testings to refine us and to strengthen us. And in this new section, Peter's going to dive deeper into the Christian's response to suffering and trials, and particularly suffering and trials that come as a result of following Jesus. The first lesson we're to learn is that we're not to be shocked when it's hard to be a Christian. We're not to be shocked when it's hard to be a Christian. We're not to be surprised when we experience hostility and resentment and mistreatment and marginalization or persecution because we're a Christian. That shouldn't shock us. Now, as Americans, living in the country in which we do, benefiting from the freedoms we have enjoyed, it does shock us. We are shocked. We're we're put off our feet. Whenever we hear of some Christian or church experiencing pushback and difficulty and even persecution. But we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be shocked. 
I love amusement parks. And I love water rides. Water rides are great, right? You like those? You know, the log flume ride or the raging rapids ride where you're in that big inner tube and you're all strapped in and you're going around in circles. And it's crazy and it's wild. And, and yet we are shocked when we ride those rides and get soaked. You ever do people watching at those places? People are shocked that they're getting wet. We shouldn't be shocked, but we are. Can you believe how soaked I am? Can you believe that happened? Yeah, I can. It was very predictable. In fact, they put a warning sign right at the entrance to the line, and it says, you will get wet on this ride. Can you believe it? We shouldn't be shocked, but oftentimes we are. The reality is oftentimes we are shocked when we suffer for doing the right thing. We think that's not the way this is supposed to work. I should get rewarded for doing the right thing. I should get rewarded for following Jesus. I should experience tangible benefits from following Jesus. So why am I suffering for it? You see, I think many of us have subtly bought into a soft form of the prosperity gospel, which wrongly says that God's chief aim in this world is to make us happy and healthy and wealthy. But that isn't the gospel. That is not the message of the Bible. That isn't the good news. The good news is that despite our great sin, offending a holy God, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. The gospel is that our sins can be forgiven through faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Forgiveness is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't trust Jesus and everything will go your way. Trust Jesus and all your problems will be over. That's not the gospel. Trust Jesus and every mountain will be brought low and every valley will be exalted. That is not the message of the Bible, and it is not the good news of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that through faith in Jesus, we will always have peace with God, not that we will always have peace with the world around us. So don't be surprised when you meet with resistance for your faith in Jesus. And I want to share with you Four reminders that will help us to not be shocked when we suffer for following Jesus. You see, we need a theology of suffering. Beloved, you've got to develop your own theology of suffering. Because you will suffer, and you're going to have to figure out, how am I going to respond to this? How how do I explain this? How do I account for this in my belief system? 
you and I need to have a robust theology of suffering. And these four reminders are going to help us, I think, to develop that theology of suffering, but also to keep us from being shocked when we experience suffering for following Jesus. And all of these reminders are simply biblical truths. Biblical truths we we know about God, we know about the world we're living in, we know about God's purposes in the world we're living in. All right? So these are all subpoints of the the first main point, all right? First of all, remember we live in a sin-cursed world filled with suffering and evil. This will help us not be shocked when we suffer as a Christian. Now, this is a general truth that can help us with any of the difficulties and sufferings we experience in life. Everyone in this world suffers. Everyone. Right? Do you believe that? Amen? Some, it would appear, suffer more. Some, it would appear, suffer less. But everyone suffers. It's part of the human experience in a sin-cursed world. This world is a veil of tears. And it's all come because of the curse of sin. Because of Adam's sin, God cursed the world we live in. And with this curse came conflict, hardship, sickness, and death. Every difficulty we face... Every heartbreak we experience, every conflict we endure, every loss we know is experienced in part because we live in a sin-cursed world. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, does not immediately deliver us out of this world with all of its hardships even though the gospel does help us through these hardships, helps us to understand these hardships and endure them in a way that is glorifying to God. So don't be shocked when you experience difficulty in this world as a Christian. Suffering and hardship are simply part of living in this sin-cursed world. As you're Entering into the line of life, there's the sign, and it says, you will suffer on this ride. So don't be shocked. All right, secondly, under this heading, B, remember we live among unbelievers who won't understand us and won't always appreciate us. Remember, we're living among unbelievers who don't always understand us and they don't always appreciate us. Now, Peter's already touched on this in this chapter. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 3. 1 Peter 4, 3, For the time is already past, is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drunk drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He's talking about their past. Before they came to Christ, they were all in with the cultural 
practices of their day, but now that they're Christians, they don't do them anymore. And verse 4, in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. Unbelievers are surprised. We're not to be shocked when we experience suffering in this world, but unbelievers are shocked that we live differently than they do. Same word is used there, by the way. Same word for surprise. Unbelievers are surprised that we don't run with them and do the things that they do. Unbelievers don't get us. They don't understand that we are people who live under authority. We don't get to make the rules. We don't get to choose what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. If we were running the world and making the rules, doubtless we would make them different, but we're not. God is in control. He is king and ruler of all that he has made. We live our lives under him, under his authority, and our calling is to submit to him. And as he's revealed himself to us in the Bible, we are to submit ourselves to what he's revealed. Unbelievers don't get that. They don't understand that we're people of a book. That we are living our lives under God's authority and for the glory of Jesus. We have a different worldview. We have different goals. We have different loves. We have different values. We spend our time differently. I mean, it's the 4th of July and where are you? God bless you for it. Why are you here? Because you recognize that first and foremost, your citizenship is in heaven. That you're an alien and a stranger on this earth. And the world goes, you're crazy. What's wrong with you? You believe all that stuff? How could you? That's ridiculous. Well, Jesus predicted all this. John 15, 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. The world would cheer you on if you were just like them. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Don't be put on your heels. Ultimately, the reason unbelievers don't understand us, don't get us, is because it's a spiritual issue. 2 Corinthians 4.3 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They can't see it. They don't get it because they're spiritually blind to it. As we would be if God had not opened our eyes in his mercy and grace. So as a Christian, you can count on it. At times you will be misunderstood. You will be maligned. You will be marginalized. 
because those who are unbelievers around us don't get us. Whether they're family members or friends or neighbors or co-workers or school friends, you're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be marginalized. You're going to be maligned. All right, C. One C. Remember, the Bible never promises us a trouble-free life. That is not a promise of Scripture. Far from it. Jesus never promised that following Him would be a cakewalk. That living for Him would be smooth sailing. In fact, He said just the opposite, right? Take up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? It means it's going to be tough. It means you've got to die to yourself. Jesus said in John 16, that in the world we will have tribulation. That's a promise from Jesus. You're going to have trouble. It's going to be difficult. You're going to be sailing into the wind. Oftentimes, on stormy seas. Paul reiterated this, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. You know what all means? All. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. Following Jesus, it's going to cost you something. Somewhere, at some point, It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you your standing. Could cost you esteem in the eyes of others. Could cost you influence. Could cost you your job. Could cost you your freedom. Could cost you your life. But it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you something. Acts 14.22, when Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, they were encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is just a fact of being a Christian. There's going to be tribulation, difficulty, hardship. Count on it. The Bible doesn't promise us a trouble-free life. And then D. Remember, we follow a perfect Savior who also suffered unjustly. If anyone deserved a trouble-free life, it was Jesus, right? I mean, he never did anything wrong. He was perfect. He, he He was the model, capital M. The model human being. This is what humans should be like. And yet, did Jesus suffer? Did Jesus go through hardship? You better believe he did. He even endured a cruel and unjust death on a cross. If Jesus, our perfect Savior, experienced unjust suffering in this world, we shouldn't expect our experience to be Categorically different than his. Jesus said in John 15, 18, 
If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 20 of John 15. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do for you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. See, it's a spiritual issue. They do not know God. Their hearts are far from God. Elsewhere, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Jesus is the head of the house. Jesus is the master. And yet they said he did his work according to Satan. And if they said that of Jesus, what do you think they're going to say about you and I? So let's not be shocked, all right? Let's develop a solid biblical theology of suffering and understand that that's just part of living in a fallen world. Understand that Unbelievers are going to do what unbelievers do, and that means they're going to misunderstand us and malign us and mistreat us at times. Understand that the Bible doesn't promise us a problem-free life and that Jesus also suffered even as we suffer. All right, so that's the first key there. Don't be shocked. The second one is, when you suffer unjustly as a Christian, rejoice. Rejoice in knowledge and hope. Rejoice in knowledge and hope. This is in verse 13. So don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you, but verse 13, but instead, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Instead of being shocked when we suffer for being a Christian, we should rejoice. And Peter gives us here two reasons we should rejoice. Two reasons for rejoicing in the midst of our suffering for Jesus. First of all, rejoice in the knowledge that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We are, as it were, one with Christ in our sufferings. Now the assumption here is that you're actually suffering as a result of following Jesus And not because you've done something wrong, morally wrong, or because you're being a jerk. There are times we suffer because of our own sin, or because of our own stupidity, or because of our stubbornness. But our rejoicing in suffering should be limited to suffering that comes as a result of following Jesus. If we're suffering because of our sin or because of our stupidity or because of our stubbornness, 
then we ought to repent of that. We ought to grieve that for what it is. Turn from it. But when we suffer for genuinely following Jesus, we should rejoice. First Peter 4, 15. Just a little bit later in the context here. Peter makes it clear that his focus is here on, is on suffering as a believer. Suffering for Jesus. Suffering for doing the right thing. 1 Peter 4.15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. This is, again, the first time Peter's mentioned these themes. 1 Peter 2.20, he says, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it patiently, you endure it, this finds favor with God. So there's a distinction between suffering for sin and suffering for doing the right thing. And Peter's focus is here is on suffering for doing the right thing. When we suffer for following Jesus, we should rejoice. So what does it mean to share in the sufferings of Christ? And having that as a reason for our rejoicing. Well, the word Peter chooses to use to speak of our sharing in the sufferings of Christ is the word koinonia. Is a word that was used to speak of the fellowship among believers. The oneness, the spiritual union of our Oneness in Christ that has united us together in Christ. It spoke of their deep fellowship. Of their willingness to sacrifice for one another. It's the same word that's used here. It means that we share a fellowship with Jesus. A oneness with Jesus. When we suffer for his sake. We share in Jesus' sufferings. And he shares in ours. Philippians 1.29. Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. He says, look, this is part of God's will for you. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for Jesus' sake. You're going to share in his sufferings, and he will share in yours. Paul said something similar in a slightly different way in Colossians 1.24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So now Paul is suffering for the sake of fellow believers. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, Jesus' body, which is the church, in filling up what is Lacking in Christ's afflictions. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that somehow Jesus' sufferings, his work on the cross were in some ways insufficient for us? That our salvation is insufficient? That we have to somehow add to Jesus' work on the cross for our salvation to be complete? No, absolutely not. doesn't mean that at all. That's not what Paul is saying. 
He was saying that this world's hatred for Christ was not satisfied at the cross of Jesus. But that their hatred for Jesus continues, even until now. And it shows itself in how they treat Jesus' followers. But he's not here for them to direct their blows at him, so they direct their blows at his followers instead. They have not yet got their pound of flesh. And so they try to exact it out of Jesus' followers. They mistreat and persecute Jesus' followers as they stand in the place of Jesus as his ambassadors. And Jesus, just as much as we identify with Jesus when we suffer, so Jesus identifies with us in our suffering. Remember when Paul was on the road to Damascus before he became a Christian? He's on the road to Damascus He was pursuing Christians to persecute them, right? To to mistreat them and to kill them. Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, knocks him to the ground, and says, Saul, Saul, what does he say? Why are you persecuting Christians? Is that what he says? Why are you persecuting my followers? He says, why are you persecuting me? Now, to our knowledge, Paul had never met Jesus before. To our knowledge, Paul, Saul, had never persecuted Jesus directly. But that's what Jesus says. Why? Because Jesus identifies with his people in such a way that to persecute a Christian is to persecute Jesus himself. We are spiritually united to Christ in such a way that what is done to a believer is done to Jesus. We share a fellowship with him. A koinonia even in his sufferings and in our sufferings. Now, why do we rejoice in this? Because when we suffer for Jesus' sake, it is a sign and a fruit of our faith. It is a sign and a fruit of the genuineness of our faith. You see, suffering for our faith in Jesus and enduring that suffering shows that we are not just fair-weather Christians committed to Jesus as long as the sun is shining and life is good. Now, Peter knew a little bit something about this, right? Remember? Remember when the, the heat was being turned up on Peter at the time of Jesus' trial? And Peter's warming himself around the fire there. And they say, hey, hey, are are you one of them? No, 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 you got the wrong guy. Hey, no, I'm pretty sure you're one of them. No, No, I'm not. Yeah, you are one of them. And he actually curses. 
to show the sincerity of his unbelief. Peter knew something about this. And yet God had graciously restored him. Jesus restored him three times for every instance of denial. Peter was given the opportunity to say, I love you and I will serve you. I love you and I will follow you. We can rejoice knowing that in such times of suffering, our faith is being proven genuine. And therefore, our eternal inheritance is sure. When we are suffering for our faith, we can rejoice in the assurance of our salvation. Because we, if we didn't believe it, if this wasn't something we really believed in, we'd say, forget it. Hang it all. I'm out. So rejoice. Rejoice in the knowledge that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ and then rejoice in the hope of ultimate joy when Jesus returns. This is our hope. Not a wish, not a desire, not an experience hopeful outcome, but rather a settled certainty, a confident expectation that sorrow is going to give way to joy. This is the believer's settled hope and confident expectation, that as we are sharing in the sufferings of Jesus... We know and rejoice that we will also one day share in the glory and joy of Jesus. We know that in his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That joy is coming in the morning. As Paul says in Romans 8:16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. And then Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen, it's hard, and we suffer, and we suffer with Christ. But listen, listen, this is not a zero-sum game. The, the experience of suffering we have here is going to be far outweighed by the glory and joy that is ours to come. For as we suffer with Christ, we will also Reign with Christ. As we experience the hardship and pain, know that one day we'll also experience the glory and victory and endless, inconceivable joy that will be ours for all eternity. So rejoice, because that's your inheritance. That's my inheritance. That's the payday for suffering now.
Don't be shocked. Rejoice. Rejoice in your unity with Jesus. Rejoice in the promise of joy that is ours in the life to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, can't help but feel that we are in many ways so unprepared to suffer for you. Make us ready. Help us to not be shocked. Help us to develop a biblical theology of suffering and to apply that when we suffer. Whether it's the the normal birth pangs of living in a fallen world or whether it's as a direct result of following you. Help us to not be shocked. Instead, Lord, help us to rejoice. Rejoice knowing that you're doing a work in our lives. Rejoice knowing that you're in control. Rejoice knowing that you have purposes to accomplish. Rejoice knowing that you share in our afflictions, that you share in our sufferings, that you identify with us, that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us, that you're always accomplishing your purposes and you're always true to your promises. Help us to rejoice in your solidarity with us and help us to rejoice knowing that these sorrows are one day going to be done. And all that will be left is joy and glory and victory with you. Help us to live for that day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.